0: Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one. God's only one be one. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Said. Hey y'all, welcome back. This is The Savior Said, episode 19, May 13th through 19th and we are studying Matthew 19-20, through Mark 10, and Luke 18, and the title of the episode is What Lack I Yet? So, great week this week. I have really enjoyed the scriptures. I've really enjoyed some of the discussions that have come from it. In this episode, I'm going to interview my friend Kansas, and she's going to talk to you a little bit about marriage and family and human development, all that good stuff, because that is touched on as well in this episode. But, before we get started... I want to address something that came up in one of the Come Follow Me groups that I'm part of. Um, you know, There's the Come Follow Me Principle Challenge. Um, if you haven't joined it on Facebook, you really should. They are an awesome group. They've got awesome resources every day. There's like a multiple resources that they post every single day. So Come Follow Me Principle Challenge. Go look for it on Facebook. But one of the admins there in the group, Mark, posted a question this week. And I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not quoting him exactly. But basically... The question was, if I have a really hard time forgiving people, what would be some ways that I can be better about that, basically? Like, forgiving people is something that's really, really hard for me. Like, help, suggestions, you know, like, and especially when you're going through and reading all these scriptures about forgiveness, and you feel like you should be forgiving people, but if it's something that you're really struggling with, like, how do you forgive people? And he's got a poll up there, and you can vote in his poll, and you can make comments and stuff like that. But I was really thinking about this. And first of all, I want to apologize to all the people who forgiveness is hard for because here's the thing when I was in college and you know, I've always struggled with self-esteem. I had a roommate who would be like, oh, I've never struggled with self-esteem, and I would always want to punch her in the face. So when I'm doing these podcast episodes, and I'm like, oh, I never struggle with forgiving people. I forgive really easily. You probably want to punch me in the face. So to all those people who struggle with forgiveness, I'm really sorry, guys. Like, I'm really sorry. But The best advice that I could think to give to anyone out there who is struggling with forgiveness, this question has been like obviously on my mind for the last couple days, but the best advice that I think I could give is to remember that forgiveness is a process. We see it in the scriptures and when we hear about it in those dramatic talks and sacrament meeting and stuff like that, it sounds like it's something that happens in just an instant. Like, oh, and then I forgave him and everything was better, but I think that we need to be a little bit more patient with ourselves, especially when it is something that is like a deep hurt, Um, something that has really impacted us emotionally and really kind of changed us, changed our lives. Um, That is something that it takes a while to get over and to extend ourselves a little bit grace while we're going through that forgiving process. You know, depending on what it is that we're having to forgive, there may be grief associated with it. Um, The ending of a relationship may be associated with it. And that's not something that you can get over quite overnight. And so it may be something that takes days. It may take weeks. It may take years to forgive that individual. I think what matters is that you are on the path of forgiving, and you are working on that process, and actively working on trying to get to a state of forgiveness for that individual. I think that's what our Father in Heaven is going to look at, not just I can't forgive him and hands up in the air and you walk away beating yourself up for it. Be like I can't forgive him like overnight. Like why can't I do this? And don't beat yourself up for it. Like extend yourself some grace and be patient with yourself while you are forgiving. And so, anyways, I don't know if that made any sense, but it's just something I've been thinking about a lot this week. So go follow the Come Follow Me Principle Challenge group because they do have awesome thought-provoking questions like that and lots of really good group discussions and lots of really good thoughts on things as well. Okay, so jumping into our scriptures this week. I have really enjoyed the scriptures this week. It was really fun um, and the chapters this week are all very similar. So I I'm just going to do a quick rundown and I have to tell you too, sorry guys, I feel like I'm like going a mile a minute. I had a Diet Coke lunch today, so I'm a little hyper, but here's the thing. Um, someone told me this week, they were like, well, you know, sometimes you do a scripture rundown, and I'm like, oh, why is she doing this? Like, I just read this. But then other times, I'm like, oh, I didn't read this week, so this is really good, because it catches me up to where we are. And I thought it would be good, because I'm doing these, like, about two weeks out before you guys actually study Come Follow Me. And I know a lot of you download them, like, then, instead of doing it the week that we actually study it. So I thought it would be good to give you a rundown of kind of, like, what we're going to be talking about. I don't know. If you have an opinion on the Scripture Rundown, let me know. Reach out at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com and, you know, I'm just trying to decide what the best format is, I guess, for the podcast. I feel like it's good. The Scripture Rundown is good. I'm going to try and keep it short, though. I think shorter is probably better, so we're going to keep trying to keep it short. Okay, so here we go. This is Matthew 19, Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And when it's the same, I'm going to tell you when it's the same, and when it's different, I'm going to tell you when it's different. It's pretty much all the same, though. Okay, so here's what's similar. Jesus teaches about marriage. Jesus blesses young children. We have the rich young man. He is in all three of the Gospels that this we're talking about this week. All three of them tell us that he was rich. Matthew tells us specifically that he was young. And Luke tells us specifically that he was a ruler. Okay, then we get the teaching about it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. Matthew 19 breaks off a little bit in verses 27 and 28 when Peter says, Hey, you know, we've given everything up and we followed you. What do we get after this life? And Jesus' answer is, You get to sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, Matthew 20, we have the parable of the vineyard. We don't get that in any of the other chapters, okay? And then. In all three of the chapters, Jesus prophesies about the upcoming crucifixion and resurrection and why they are going to Jerusalem. It doesn't really sink in with the disciples, but he's telling them, hey guys, this is coming up, and he turns his face towards Jerusalem. All right, in Matthew 20, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's children, James and John, She says, comes to Jesus and says, Grant that my two sons may sit, one at the right hand and one at the left, in thy kingdom. In Mark 10, it's just James and John coming to him, not their mother. But, you know, somehow, James and John want to sit at his right and left in the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, Jesus goes into that whole conversation. We're going to talk more about it. Okay? Then, In Matthew, it's two blind men that they approach on the street. In Mark, it's one, Bartimaeus. And in Luke, it is a certain blind man. I don't know. Somewhere, there are blind people coming to Jesus, and he's healing them. Okay? And that's how lots of these chapters end. And then in Luke 18, there's a little bit of a difference. We get the parable of the unjust judge, and then we get the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which teaches us a little bit about prayer. And that is what we read this week. Okay, so jumping right into Come Follow Me, um, the first couple sections are about marriage and family, and I'm going to pick up on those with my friend Kansas at the very end of this episode. So I want to get into the scripture stuff kind of first, so we're going to jump right into the section of Come Follow Me that talks about the rich young man. If you remember, in the first episode, we talked about this very scripture, the rich young man. He's coming to Christ and saying, you know, what lack I yet? And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to the first episode to kind of see what I said then, to kind of remind myself about a few things I was thinking. And y'all... Oh my gosh, like listening to that first episode, it was cringeworthy, like oh my lanta, it was so awful. And I'm so sorry for all of those who have listened through these 19 episodes, I hope I have gotten better. I know I have gotten better. Uh, My sound equipment has gotten better. So um, if you have listened to the first couple episodes of this podcast, bless you and thank you for sticking with me this far. Um, Yeah, it was just a hot mess. But I had some good insights there. I think I've got some different insights though this week. As I went in and read, you know, the young man comes to Jesus and he's saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that tells me, first of all, that his eyes are, are set on a good thing. Right? He wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. So, I think that was probably a question that a lot there in the culture were asking. You know, with such a religious based culture, I mean, you can't help but be fo- focused on like what's coming after this world. The fact that he's going to Jesus and saying, Good Master, and realizing that Jesus is an authority on what's coming in the next life shows some faith. I think it shows some faith in Jesus and in who Jesus is and what he's representing. He's coming to Christ from a place of humility, saying, Good Master. And, you know, Jesus does that whole thing of, Why callest thou me good? There is no one good but God. Saying, you know, you're looking for good, but do you really know what good is? I think is what Jesus is kind of saying to him there. The young man says, You know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists off a couple of commandments for him. And the last commandment that he gives out of this list of like, you know, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, all this stuff. The very last thing he says to him is, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? The young man says, oh, but all these things I've done since my youth. Like, I've, I've done all these things, right? And Jesus says, then sell all you have and give it to the poor. Okay, so I think two things are happening here. First of all, if the young man had been really, like, kind of on the level he would have picked up on this, I think, that the last thing he said that he had done was loved his neighbor as himself, but yet he still had all these possessions and had not given them to the poor, right? Okay, so I think that's going on. There's kind of like a juxtaposition between what this young man says he's doing and what he has actually done. And then the second thing I think that's happening here is that Jesus realizes that, yeah, keeping these commandments is not an issue for this young man, except for maybe the neighbor one. But the rest of them, it's not really an issue for this guy. What his issue is, what his God is, is material wealth. And that is his issue. And so he's saying, can you put aside your God, basically, that you worship, this material wealth, can you put it aside and can you follow me? I think it's important to note that because I think a lot of times we read these scriptures and we're like, you know, we go into the next scripture where it talks about the rich man and the eye of the needle and we're like, oh, we can't be rich. Or if you're rich, it's really hard to, you know, go into the kingdom of heaven. But if you think about your life that you have right now, I promise you that compared to the life that this rich young man had in ancient Israel, you have riches and wonders he would never even dream of right so compared to this rich young man we are all very very wealthy i don't think the whole you know just being rich disqualifies you from the kingdom of heaven i think what jesus is trying to show here is that focusing on riches and wealth and material possessions is what makes it difficult for you to get through that eye of the needle you know it's you've got all this stuff carrying with you it's it's harder to get through that eye of the needle right And so he's telling that young man, hey, take your eyes off of your material wealth and all your possessions and all these things that are so important to you, and then actually go and serve thy neighbor and give to the poor and love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he adds on the end, Jesus adds on the end, sell all that you have and come follow me. He gives this young man the same invitation that he gave to his disciples. Come and follow me. He's literally saying, buddy, you know, go sell all you got and give to the poor. And then you can turn around and you can come be part of my posse. Like, you can come be part of my crowd. And what an invitation that is. And then the young man goes away very sorrowful for he had many possessions and it made him really sad, right? I wonder what happened to that young man. And I'm sad that we don't get to hear the rest of his story. Did he go sell all his stuff and come follow Christ? I don't know. You know, I wish I knew. It'd be a really neat end to the story. So I think what we take from the parable of the rich young man is that I think all of us have commandments that we are really good at keeping. There's, you know, those commandments and those, you know, doctrines and things like that, that we are really good at following. And then we all have maybe that one or two commandments that are a little bit difficult for us. Or one or two teachings of Jesus that are a little bit difficult for us. I can tell you right now, mine is being patient to people, right? And not judging others. Those are two of my biggest weaknesses. And so, yeah, I can say I don't commit adultery. I don't murder people. I honor my parents. I hope they think I honor them. (laughs) They might say differently, I do honor them. I'm good, I'm good. But I am judgy, and I'm very impatient. I've been struggling with impatience specifically this week. Very impatient. And so I can see why, you know, the young man has this situation. And I think Jesus, you know, we read especially in Mark, where he says, what lack I yet? And it says, and Jesus loved him. And I don't necessarily know that Jesus that response was to what the question that the man asked, like, oh, he's so good. So I love him because that's not how Jesus and God work. I think Jesus loved him because he saw the man for who he was. And he saw this priority that he was placing on material things, but that he was still kind of trying to do the right. And he loved him where he was, which what a beautiful message that is for us. That when we are trying to do the right thing, Jesus beholds us and he loves us. And again, it's good to note that Jesus doesn't love us because we are perfect or because we are keeping all the commandments. Jesus sees those flaws in us, those little like weaknesses that we have, and he loves us anyways. We love him too though. We love him back. And that's why we approach the master and we ask what lack i yet um, and if you go and read some of the conference talks that it recommends and come follow me it recommends that you take some quiet time each week maybe during the sacrament and you ask the lord what lack i yet and they gave some really interesting examples of people sitting down and asking the lord what lack i yet and the answers that they got okay and this is from the talk what lack i yet by Larry R. Lawrence from the October 2015 General Conference. And this is what the talk that's referenced in Come Follow Me. He quotes Harold B. Lee saying, Every one of us, if we would reach perfection, must at one time ask ourselves this question, What lack I yet? And he gives several examples. He says, I knew a faithful mother who humbled herself and asked, What is keeping me from progressing? And in her case, the response from the Spirit came immediately, Stop complaining. Well, this answer surprised her. She never thought of herself as a complainer. However, the message from the Holy Ghost was very clear. In the days that followed, she became conscious of her habit of complaining. Grateful for the prompting to improve, she determined to count her blessings instead of her challenges. And within days, she felt the warm approval of the Spirit. Another example. A humble young man who couldn't seem to find the right young woman went to the Lord for help. What is keeping me from being the right young man? Which, pause, this is Lexi, by the way. What a good question that was. Instead of, Heavenly Father, why can't you help me find a spouse? Or, Heavenly Father, why can't you help me find the right woman? What is keeping me from being the right young man? That's a really good way to look at it. Okay, unpause, back to the conference talk. This answer came into his mind and heart. Clean up your language. At that moment, he realized that several crude expressions had become part of his vocabulary, and he committed to change. A single sister bravely asked the question, what do I need to change? And the spirit whispered to her, don't interrupt people when they are talking. The Holy Ghost really does give customized counsel. He is completely honest and he will tell us the things that no one else knows or has the courage to say to us. One returned missionary found himself very stressed with a heavy schedule. He was trying to find time for work, studies, family, and a church calling. He asked the Lord for counsel, How can I feel at peace with all that I need to do? The answer was not what he expected. He received the impression that he should be more careful in observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. He decided to dedicate Sunday to God's service to lay aside his school courses on that day and study the gospel instead. This small adjustment brought the peace and balance he was seeking. Years ago, I read in a church magazine the story of a girl who was living away from home and going to college. She was behind in her classes, her social life was not what she had hoped for, and she was generally unhappy. Finally, one day, she fell to her knees and cried out, What can I do to improve my life? And the Holy Ghost whispered, Get up and clean your room. This prompting came as a complete surprise, but it was just the start she needed. After taking time to organize and put things in order, she felt the Spirit fill her room and lift her heart. Okay, this is me back again. Um, So this was really interesting to me as I'm going through and I'm reading these examples that Elder Lawrence is kind of referencing. Because none of them are like, be perfect. Or none of them are like, stop lying or whatever. They're all subtle behavior adjustments that we can make to our course here in life. Like I think of Elder Uchtdorf talking about planes and how even a minor course adjustment can put the plane kind of off track. And I feel like when we go to the Lord and say, what lack I yet, that kind of adjusts our plane and we get back on the track that the Lord has for us. Um, I haven't done this yet. I'm going to wait till sacrament meeting on Sunday. I'm really excited to do it, though. I think that this might be a really good experience. Or maybe it'll be a very humbling experience. And the Lord will be like, okay, Lexi, so you need to change this and this and this. And I'll be like, okay, yes, sir. So I'm excited to see what happens from that. Okay, so the next section in come follow me is from matthew 21 through 16 but there's several other places in this week's reading that i think relate to this and it's talking about the parable of the vineyard and it says everyone can receive the blessing of eternal life no matter when they accept the gospel can you relate to the experience of any of the laborers in the vineyard and what lessons do you find for yourself in this passage Okay, so the parable that we have, we've got a man who's a householder. He is obviously in charge of a vineyard, and he's looking for laborers to come and work in his vineyard. Now, working in a vineyard is hard work. You're bent over all day long, and it's hot sun, and you're picking grapes. That's what you're doing in a vineyard, right? And so you're bent over, you're picking grapes. I mean, this is a hard job, right? people when they didn't have like a steady income there in ancient Israel would go and kind of hang out in like I guess the marketplace or whatever and people who needed odd jobs done would kind of come and like say hey will you come work for me for this amount and they would say yeah let's let's do it that sounds great and they'd go I think you know there are some places in my town where I know where people who don't have jobs kind of congregate and people who need like a ditch dug in their backyard will go and pick them up and say hey for 20 bucks you can come dig this ditch and they'll be like yeah and they'll go and I'll do it. Okay, that's what we got going on here. Now, right before the grape harvest, there was like this frantic rush to get all the grapes off the vine before they get all mushy and raisiny, right? You've all had mushy grapes and it's just a bad experience. We don't want that, right? We want to get all the fruit off the vine that we can. And now the workday... In ancient Israel, you know, our current workday schedule where we work from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, is very lax compared to ancient Israel. They worked from sunup to sundown, 6 in the morning to 6 o'clock at night, 12-hour days they worked. And they worked those every single solitary day except for Sunday. There was no such thing as a weekend to them. They just had the Sabbath. That was it man goes out at first, and this is probably at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he sees the people standing idle in the marketplace, and he says, Hey, will y'all come work for a penny? And they're like, Yeah, sure. Which, honestly, it probably wasn't a penny. It was probably one denarius, which is like, you know, a day's wage back back in ancient Israel. Hey, we come work for a day's wage? And they're like, Yeah, sure, sounds good. 6 o'clock. Okay, so they're out in the fields. Then at 9 o'clock... I don't know, maybe the householder's getting a little nervous, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get all these grapes in, maybe I better go get a few more guys. So he heads back to the marketplace, and is like, hey guys, will you come work for a penny? And They're like, yeah, sounds good. And so they hop in the truck, and he takes them back to his vineyard, okay? And by the way, I know that there's not actually a truck, I'm just, you know, it's a metaphor, go with it. All right, and then so 6th hour, which is noon, it's the hottest part of the day, right? He's looking out, and he's like, oh, you know, I really don't know about this. And he goes, and he gets a few more guys. They agree to come work for him. They hop in the vineyard they're working too. Oh, then we get to about, you know, 3 o'clock. That would be the ninth hour. And maybe he's still a little nervous about it. He doesn't know if this harvest is going to get done in time. Maybe there's still a lot of grapes left. And so when he goes, and he gets a few more laborers, and they come, you know, there still have been, like, these people who are working from six o'clock in the morning doing this backbreaking work they've been working the whole time the people who joined them at nine have been working the whole time same thing for those who've been working since noon and finally at five o'clock he's like okay i'm convinced that there is not enough people out here i still need to go get some more people and he goes and he gets some more workers and he brings them out into the vineyard and then at six o'clock When the day is over, hopefully all the grapes were harvested, right? As many as they could get. And he goes and he pays them. And instead of paying them from first to last, he starts at the last. And he pays the last to the first, right? He takes his steward and he says, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Okay? So those who joined at 5 o'clock go ahead and give them their pay. And so they come up and they get the day's wage, one penny. And then those from 3 o'clock, they come up and they get one penny. And those who joined at noon, they get one penny. And those who joined at 9 get one penny. And those who joined at 6 get one penny. Okay, interesting the way that this works. Because can you imagine if you are one of those 9 o'clock or 6 o'clock laborers and you're watching like the people get the penny, like the 5 o'clock guys get the penny, and you're like, oh... Man, they only worked one hour, and they got a penny? Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, what am I going to get? It's going to be so much better. Oh, they only gave the 3 o'clock people a penny. But, you know, they were just working for two hours, so, okay, I'm still going to get a better deal. And then once they hit, like, the noon people, and they're still giving a penny, you'd be kind of like, uh, and then they hit the 9 o'clock people, and they get a penny. If I'm one of the 6 o'clock people, I'd be like... What? Like, I have been working for 12 hours, and these guys who just came at 5 o'clock, like, they're getting the same thing I'm getting. Like, I would be a little bit upset, right? Okay, that's not what this parable is about. I think we look at it, and we think that way. What this is about is people who have had the gospel in their lives. Some of us have been born into the church we have been born with the gospel in our lives we have great parents we're like nephi you know raised by goodly parents and we have had the gospel our whole lives okay some of us maybe have been converted as adults others of us do not accept the gospel until, you know, the last few years of our lives. So I think instead of looking at this parable as something of like, well, I've been working my whole life, you know, and, you know, Grandpa Joe over here, who's 85 years old, is just now accepting the gospel. Like, he's going to get the same reward I am. Like, that's not fair. No, this is not a parable of unfairness because life is unfair. But this is a parable of hope, Because Grandpa Joe, who's 85, still has the chance to come to Christ. And that's what this parable is about. It's not about unfairness and wages. It's about that Grandpa Joe, at the last breath of his life, still has the chance to come to Christ. We all have the chance to come to Christ at any point in our lives, right? That's the beauty of this parable. And, you know, yeah, those laborers who are working from 6 o'clock in the morning, they may may be complaining, but you know what? They had a job. There are people still standing idle in the marketplace, and they didn't have a job that day, but these people still had a job. Yeah, there are those of us who are born in the gospel, and we are working in the kingdom of heaven, but we have Christ's love, and we have the blessings of the gospel in our life as we are working along. Grandpa Joe, who's 85, did not have that for 85 years, right? So we are getting blessings of the gospel all the way along. Also, I think that this is really interesting for this parable is when the householder of the vineyard comes and they know the laborers are all like, well, you didn't give me this, and that's not fair. It's not fair. And he says in 13, friend, I did thee no wrong. Did thou not agree with me for one penny? He says, is it not lawful for me to do with what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So for that, I think we can say, you know, do we get upset when people like, oh, he's a bad guy, but he's still got like this really awesome house. And, oh, well, she's really kind of like shallow, but she still has like this really amazing husband. Like how's, no, no, it's not for us to judge what God gives to people is the other part of this parable. And it's saying, are you looking on the good things I'm giving other people with an evil eye? Like, are your eyes evil? Like, when you're looking at the things that other people have, it's my gifts to give. And you don't know why he's giving those people those different gifts. And so look at your own gifts instead of their gifts, right? It's cast your eyes on yourself instead of what other people are getting. Because life is not fair. And nothing is going to be fair. Heavenly Father blesses people for many different reasons in many different ways. So it's not fair to compare our own blessings against others, right? And the whole reason that we have this parable to kind of set it up, I know I gave the parable and now we're going to go back to like, you know, the, the setup for this is because we see multiple times in these chapters, disciples coming to him and saying, Hey, you know, we do a lot for the kingdom of heaven. Are we going to get an amazing reward after this life? Right? And so he ends the parable by saying, The last shall be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we first see this after the interaction of Christ and the young man. Because Jesus has just told the young man, Sell all you have and follow me. And Peter stands up and is like, Yo, we sold all we had. Like, we totally followed you. We're going to get a big, huge, giant reward. Because we did the right thing. Yeah! Woo! And Christ is like, well, actually, everybody's getting eternal life, guys. (laughs) Like, It's going to be for all, right? You know, you may get blessings in this life because of the things you've done. And he says eventually that the 12 disciples will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And they'll have, you know, the 12 thrones and things like that. But that's when he goes into this parable and be like, okay, guys, the blessings of Christ come to all. No matter when they received them and no matter how long they've been laboring, I'm saying that with quotation marks, in the vineyard of Christ, right? And that leads into the next discussion that happens where you have James and John, either themselves or their mom, approaching Christ and saying, hey, we want to be on your right hand and your left hand. And one of the things I learned this week, I was listening to a podcast about this, is they said, you know, there's lots of different spots in the Bible that makes us think that the disciples were decidedly younger than christ you know christ is about 33 years old or so when he goes to jerusalem and is crucified right if you look at the lifespans of the other apostles and disciples that follow him like they were fairly young when he was crucified so james and john have their mom with them as they are traveling around with christ you know maybe they're late teens i don't know early 20s maybe even younger Right? So it would not be totally unweird I guess for their mom to approach Christ and say hey will you please take my sweet babies into you know into your arms basically and let them be in the kingdom of heaven with you which first of all any teenage boy I know would be like mom this is so embarrassing like stop mom this is just humiliating so I don't know maybe saves them that humiliation and just says James and John instead of James and John's mom went to Jesus right Jesus says to them in Matthew twenty twenty two. Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they say, yeah, we're able. Okay, they don't understand the cup that Jesus is about to take upon him, the sins of the world, the sins of all time, of everyone who's ever lived. That is the cup that Jesus is about to take and the baptism that he is about to be baptized with as he goes through Gethsemane and then up on the cross. They don't get it. And so they're like, yeah, we're able again. This is totally teenagerhood. I mean, they can—they think they're invincible. They can do anything, right? They know everything. And so, yeah, I could totally see this. Jesus, you know, again, I think he probably looks at them and loved them for their enthusiasm and their willingness, but they didn't quite get it yet. And he says, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup, not the cup, but my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Okay, so there's the cup which is taking on the sins of the world, which Jesus even says when he's in Gethsemane, Father, please remove this cup from me. You know, that's the cup that he is about ready to drink. But instead, James and John and everybody else are going to be drinking from my cup. And the cup that is Jesus' cup that he's giving to them is the sacrament. It is his blood. It is his eternal life. And that is the cup that his followers drink out of. And the baptism that he's talking about, yeah, they're going to have hardship and they're going to have, it's going to be a trial by fire for these little young apostles and disciples after he leaves. But he's got that cup that he's going to give them the everlasting life and, you know, the living water that he is, is the cup that he's going to give them. And that's what he can give them. What he can't give them, this is Jesus being so humble. And he's saying, to sit on my right and my left hand, it's not mine to give. It's going to give to them whom it is prepared for by my Father, my Father in Heaven. And that's him stepping back and saying, it's his choice. It's up to him. You know, I give the glory to him, basically. That's him humbling himself before his Father in Heaven. So... Beautiful, beautiful moment here. Um, and then, of course, we go into the whole thing about whoever will be great among you be the minister. Because the rest of the disciples are hearing this and saying, you shall drink of my cup and you shall be baptized. And they're like, wait, wait, Jesus is giving them a cup and being letting them be baptized? Like, are they better than us? Like, they can't be better than us. I did a lot too, you know. And then we have the whole vineyard situation again where Jesus is like, guys, settle down. If any of you will be first among you, you need to be the last. If you will be the greatest among you, be the servant. Be the minister. If you will be chief, be the servant. That whole thing, servant leadership, is what Christ is all about. And it's the model that he creates for us. And then he goes into, he's trying to teach them, like, guys, Jerusalem is coming. Jerusalem is coming. Just prepare your hearts and prepare your minds. Get ready, because that cup I just talked to you about, that cup is coming. And they don't get it. Bless their hearts, the young disciples that they are. But are there times in our lives where Jesus says stuff like that? Like, hey guys, so this is coming. Prepare yourself. And we're like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, sometimes I think I am like that. So I can't really dog on the disciples too much for not not really getting it. Because there's lots of times where I don't get stuff that God's trying to tell me I don't think. Okay, so up next, I am so excited, guys, to introduce you to this next section. This is where we're going to talk about Jesus' teachings on marriage and family and children and all that. I'm going to introduce you guys to my friend, Kansas. Yes, her name is Kansas, like the state Kansas, but she's awesome. So listen in. All right, guys, so I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, Kansas. And Kansas and I have been friends for, like, the longest time. Like, I think it's longer than 30 years that we've been friends. Yes. Um, Like we camped out in each other's backyards and, you know, had crazy times growing up. But um, she has always been someone that I have always come to for relationship advice and whether it's dating or marriage and things like that, I've always really trusted her guidance and her wisdom when it comes to relationships. So it was very easy for me to see when I read these sections and come follow me why she would be the one I would turn to. Um, you know she's got lots of good life experiences on this, and also she's got a degree in marriage, family, and human development from BYU. So she's got some good insights. So Kansas, welcome to the Savior said. Uh, so glad to be here. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I know. It's always a little nervous talking on the podcast. I know. Okay, so you've read over some of the sections and come follow me. Yes. Do you want to start off with any thoughts that you had?
1: Um, well, first, I guess I should introduce myself a little yeah, bit, just please. so people know why you thought of being. Well, like you said, I have the degree um, from BYU, so uh, I'm bringing a bit of social science perspective to this. Um, And then also a personal aspect, my mother was divorced uh, three times, so she was the fourth times a charm type of person. (laughs) And then I actually am divorced as well, so I have some personal experience that I think adds into this, so...
0: Okay, so this week in Come Follow Me, we're reading in Matthew 19, and we hear Jesus talk a little bit about marriage and divorce and things like that. And so Come Follow Me asks, how does your knowledge of the Father's plan of salvation help you understand why marriage between a man and woman is ordained of God? So how would you answer that, Kansas? Uh, This is a um, deep
1: question, lots of uh, aspects to it. So when I was reading this, I immediately thought of an experience I had when I was thinking over, um, puzzling over, trying to figure out uh, the church's views on same-sex marriage and why they were the way they were and how I was supposed to come to terms with that. And it, this was, like, over a very long period, like, <laughs> probably over a year, maybe more, that I was just, like, constantly praying about it and how how am I supposed to talk to my friends if I, you know, have someone who comes to me and asks me, like, my position, like, how am I supposed to respond and how can I respond with sympathy and empathy and, and why is it this way? <laughs> like, that was my big question was the why. So... Um, it was just something that was kind of rolling around in my head all the time. And then I remember being at a, um, I think it was like a fireside of some sort. Um, and when I was sitting there, the answer kind of, it was barely an answer, but <laughs> the feeling and answer came into my head that it's just bigger than you realize or in the, like more, it's hard to put into words the feeling, but it was like a bigger than you realize, or bigger than you can comprehend, or there's more to it than you can understand, basically is kind of the answer I got. And although that wasn't like a completely satisfactory answer, it is not going to help me like really talk to people about it. It was good for me personally. So don't write that down as like doctor. And obviously that's just Kansas' personal <laughs> feelings on that. But that that helped me, um, kind of, that helped start me kind of on the direction of, Why is this marriage between man and woman ordained of God? And then um, a few general conferences ago, Elder Todd Christofferson gave a talk and it just like hit everything else home, like kind of like uh, finished that thought for me almost in a way. And I just sat up and listened to the whole talk from beginning to end is amazing. So I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this to read it. It's called Why Marriage? Why Family? Because pretty much the rest of what I'm going to talk about comes from that talk. In it, he specifically talks about um, the plan of salvation and um, he starts off saying like, what is the plan of salvation? Why is it important? You know, and the big thing about the plan of salvation, I think that we all know is that um, to come here and get a body is a big part of the plan of salvation. And then to learn, right? Be tested. I like to think of it more as a learning ground than a testing ground. Just um, a place to learn and grow and uh, come back to him, right? So to come back to him, we have to like learn and obey and things. So in this talk, he talks about four things that are needed for the success of the plan of salvation. And the last one being that we need a setting for our physical birth and subsequent spiritual rebirth. So when we know why we left our Heavenly Father, obviously to get a body and to prove ourselves and that. Our main goal is to get back to him. It becomes super clear. The two most important things, as he just said, are the physical birth and the spiritual rebirth. We have to have those to go back to eternal life. So I'm going to quote Elder Kristofferson here. It says, A family built on the marriage of a man and woman supplies the best setting for God's plan to thrive. A setting for the birth of children and an environment for the learning and preparation they will need. For those two um, big things we need, physical birth, obviously. Like the marriage of a man and woman is perfect for that. And then a setting where children can grow and learn and prepare. A marriage between man and a woman is best setting for that. And this is probably my favorite quote because this is when it really struck home what I was feeling before. He says, it has never been just about the love and happiness of adults. Which that's when my mind said, again, it's bigger than us. Like, so many times we think everything's about us, but it's not. It's bigger than that and more important than that. And he even mentions, his next quote even talks about, um, there's a social science case for marriage and families and that is true there's a whole lot of studies out there that society and communities thrive better when there's a family unit children especially poor especially uh thrive better in this kind of environment so it's like the weaker of us thrive better like yes of course you can thrive not in that perfect family unit but as a whole everybody grows more so we, we could go on the social science of that more and he mentions it and um, reference to something, but he says more important than that our claims for the role of marriage and family rest not on social science, but on the truth that they are of God's creation. That means a lot to me. But then because we're all not in this perfect situation of husband, wife, child, family union, like I would say the majority of us are not in that perfect uh, situation. This next quote is why I love this talk more than anything else in the world. And if you're not in that perfect situation with... Lexi and I both have not been in that perfect situation. We both have experienced singleness for longer than is normal in the, in the Mormon world and infertility issues. And of course, uh, now I, I guess you could say I'm more in that perfect situation with husband, wife, and child. But um, I'm super empathetic to those who are not in that position. Um, just coming from a family of divorce and being divorced, I have, I've experienced it all. So. That being said, if you're in one of those situations that's not perfect, you need to write this talk upon your heart and just every time you're in church and you're feeling super uncomfortable or you're feeling like out of place or they're talking again about family or I heard one time someone references like being at the dinner, a really nice dinner table lots of good food and you can't eat any of it. (laughs) If you're feeling like that, then um, this is a quote for you. So I'm just going to read it because it came from an apostle at General Conference, which means something pretty big in my opinion. So I'm just going to read it says to declare the fundamental truths relative to marriage and family is not to overlook or diminish the sacrifices and successes of those for whom the ideal is not a present reality. Some of you are denied the blessing of marriage for reasons, including a lack of viable prospects, same sex attraction, physical or mental impairments, or simply a fear of failure. Or you may have married, but that marriage ended and you're left to manage alone. What two together can barely sustain, Some of you who are married cannot bear children despite overwhelming desires and pleading prayers. Even so, everyone has gifts. Everyone has talents. Everyone can contribute to the unfolding of the divine plan in each generation. Much that is good, much that is essential, even sometimes all that is necessary for now, can be achieved in less than idyllic circumstances. Um, I just love that so much. Like... Like I said, like write that upon your heart, tattoo it on you, <laughs> like look at it again and again, because it that's huge to me, what he's recognizing. And you have to remember, we speak in ideals at church, but that doesn't mean that what your, what's your situation is less than or failing. It's just, we like to talk in ideals. We like to talk in reaching and perfectionism,
0: but none of us are perfect. So. I love that so much. And I don't know if you remember this or not. When I was a teenager, do you remember us being teenagers and young women? Yes, of course. And so. I would have like come aparts anytime anyone talked about marriage. Do you remember this? No, I don't remember this. Okay. Like I would have like literal breakdowns to the point that my parents actually talked to our Laurel advisors and were like, if you're going to have a lesson on eternal marriage, you need to let us know because she's convinced she's not going to get married and she's going to have a breakdown. And like, poor. I won't even say their names, but we had two really awesome Laurel advisors, and they would always be like, "Lexi, we're gonna talk about the M word this week," and I would be like, "Okay, I'm gonna go to Relief Society," because it was so touchy to me. I was just so convinced that I would never get married. Do you remember this? Does it sound I familiar? I don't remember now? this. No. But oh my gosh! It sounds. It sounds. Um, Like something that would happen. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like something that would happen. Oh, my gosh. It was such like I was just so afraid I would never get married. Mm -hmm. And I think that that comes from a place of wanting, first of all, to fit into that perfect mold Mm -hmm. and being afraid that I would never be able to do it. And I think sometimes Mm -hmm. for those of us who are single and for those of us who are infertile, it's just it's out of our hands. Mm -hmm. We didn't choose to be that way. And so it's looking to God to kind of fill that other half that we're missing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know it's not the same. It's not the same as being married with someone that you love, but it's, it's hard. And I feel for people who are in that situation. Yeah, I do too. Mm
1: -hmm. Like
0: intensely. Okay. So why do you think marriage is so important to the Lord? Like it's important enough that Jesus would talk about it.
1: Like you said, I think it's the, the basis for his entire plan for us to coming back to him. It's, um, the very basic of it. It's that simple.
0: Okay, so we did talk a little bit about same-sex attraction and things like that. And mm-hmm. you talked about how you were trying to deal with, like, coming to terms with, like, how do I deal with people who are mm-hmm. pro-same-sex marriage? And, of course, we always want to follow the Lord and the doctrine and all that stuff like yes. that. But how do we deal with people who disagree with us on the issue of same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction?
1: I haven't found a great way to do that because a lot of times I just completely sympathize with them. Or I'm like, yeah, I get why. This would be something you're questioning. (laughs) So, but um, I think just kindness is the best way to always go. Like, just stay kind. And um, there's no point in argumenting, uh, argumenting, (laughs) being argumentative. (laughs) There's no point in being argumentative. It's, I think, expressing that you understand their opinion. And then bearing testimony is really the best way to go, always.
0: And I think something you said there is just, you know, empathizing with them and sympathizing with them and being like, okay, I totally get where you're coming from. That I think is so powerful too. Yeah, I think so. When you're in situations. And like I think that. it's
1: unexpected when they're expecting when they're come almost expecting a fight and you don't want contention, so don't you shouldn't give them that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're expecting to be bashed over the head with a Bible. Right. And instead you're like, No, I and, totally understand. And you respond with love and empathy. Yeah. That's the way to go. Oh, I oh. love it. That's awesome. Okay. So Did Jesus teach that divorce is never acceptable or that divorced people should not remarry? That's from Come Follow Me. Do you have any thoughts on that? This is a bit. I have so many thoughts. Like, so many thoughts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Being divorced and coming uh, as a child of a a divorced mom and um, a social science major. I have so many thoughts on that. One of my favorite talks, um, Marriage, is actually by Gordon B. Hinckley. It's a rough talk, like, I'm going to be honest. It's one of those ones that's hard to hear, you know, because it's kind of beats you over the head a little bit, or it seems almost extreme, maybe, in some of his phrasings that he uses. But it's from 1991, and it's called What God Hath Joined Together. That This is probably my favorite piece of marriage advice ever. And it's, I am satisfied that a happy marriage is not so much a matter of romance, As it is an anxious concern for the comfort and well-being of one's companion. So that phrase, anxious concern for the comfort and well-being of one's companion, plays in my mind a lot um, when I'm going through my marriage. Like, is this an anxious concern for my (laughs) well-being? Or is it an anxious concern for his well-being? Like, um, I just kind of try to think of that all the time. Like, are you being anxiously concerned for his well-being? More often than not, I'm not being anxiously concerned for his well-being. So... If that one can be kind of constantly repeating in your head then I, I need think- a cross stitch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I need a cross stitch of that. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so Salph, we cross stitch all yeah, the things. We do. We do. We
0: believe in all things, we cross stitch all things. <laughs>
1: It's a good one. I think that anyone should read if they're like thinking about divorce, maybe because it really, he's very, he's so anti-divorce in that talk and very strongly like anti-divorce. And I think that this talk is part of the reason why I became a marriage family and development major, because I really thought like, if I can decrease the divorce rate, then I will save the world. Like I kind of thought that like, I will save the world through saving marriage. It was kind of like my uh, motto. And then, and then I got a divorce myself. So that's like ironic probably. (laughs) Is that actually ironic? <laughs> <laughs> is that the definition of irony? <laughs> the definition. Okay. Alanis no. Morissette messed up the definition <laughs> of irony for me. I don't know what irony is anymore. So yes, that was very ironic. But, <laughs> anyways, if you are contemplating, if you want to know about the seriousness of divorce, you read Gordon Hinkley's talk, like, um, which I think is important because we are in a time where divorce is just considered like nothing. Like it's so commonplace that we just it's like not even a big deal. And it is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And that I can, I can say that as someone who's experienced divorce, it's a very, very big deal. And it's not something that should be taken lightly. You know, if people even nowadays use the phrase like starter marriages, like a starter home, like it's very, it's very serious, this epidemic of how um, lightly we take marriage and um, divorce. So, so I like that talk for that reason. But even better is the talk that Come follow me, referenced. And that's the one from Dalney Jokes, which is simply called Divorce, which is beautiful, right? Like, divorce. That's all that <laughs> needs to be said in yeah. the title of this talk. That's what this talk is about. <laughs> and um, in it, I think that talk is coming from my social science. This has got so much uh, awesome marriage advice in it. Like, it's a talk on divorce, but like, if you're married, you should read it because it's almost like your marriage Bible of how to keep your marriage together is what really that talk is. So and then I also like that one, if you've been divorced, maybe you don't want to read Gordon B. talk because it might make you feel a little bad. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you read Dallin H. talk because he kind of addresses like, hey, if you have been divorced, like move past it, you know, like move on, forgive yourself. That's what the atonement is for. Um, whether you were at fault all the way or partly or none of the way, you, there's I'm sure you need to apply the atonement, whether it's to yourself, to this former spouse, apply the atonement just everywhere.
0: Just for healing too, (laughs) right? To help Mm -hmm. heal that wound. And I like, there's a quote from there. I hope I'm not stealing your quote. No, go ahead. But there's a quote from there that says that all who have been through divorce know the pain and need the healing power and hope that comes from the atonement. And that healing power and that hope are there also for them, but also for their children. And so the atonement can apply that grace and that healing power can apply to children of a divorce.
1: Right. Mm -hmm.
0: So, yeah, that's
1: why read his talk if you've been through divorce (laughs) because that will help you... um, Remember to give yourself grace mm-hmm. and um, others in your life. I also love his talk because it addresses that scripture quote in Come Follow Me about like putting aside like your wife. And he says that that um, really he was talking to the men of ancient times who could just put away their wife for any reason. I watched this show called Poldark, which is amazing in case. Like little plug for Poldark in there. <laughs> but in it, like w- one of the characters is trying to put his perfectly sane wife in an insane asylum. And all he needs is a doctor just to like okay it, which he can like pay off a doctor, it's super easy. And so when I saw that part of that episode, I started like researching it more and it was really easy just to like put your wife away, like just because you like wanted your mistress more, maybe you were tired of her, like it was super easy. And so I think that's what this is mostly addressing is those people who are doing that kind of terrible behavior. And that's what Elder Oaks kind of implies here. But he also says that that is the celestial standard as well. Like not putting your wife away and if you did, it's adultery. That's like the higher standard and we're all human and thank goodness the Lord understands that and understands that that's, you know, he's not going to force that here on earth because we're not perfect. So, because we're not perfect, we can't enforce that celestial standard. Um so I really like that explanation of that scripture because that scripture seems like like that's hard to read if you've if you've been divorced and you're like, well, I'm committing adultery like, technically. Ouch. <laughs> right. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> yeah. So, I I really like that section of um, his talk as well. And then he has like he breaks it down like here them talk to the divorce people and he has like a really good talk. But then he has That part where I talk about, um, is a a handbook almost for like staying married is when he says, okay, now I'm going to speak to you guys for possibly like thinking a divorce. But I think everyone should read that part because like I said, it, it just hits like all the things that you should be doing to keep your marriage together. Like the praying, the spending time together. I mean, the basic things sometimes that we all know, but it's almost like a good checklist. Like, am I doing these things? Um, the forgiveness part's huge. Forgiving, Not like always thinking about what your spouse has done to hurt you and like bringing up old wounds all the time, like really truly applying the atonement to your spouse and um, forgiving them and moving on is key
0: you know, I had probably the first year that we were married, I had really good advice given to me. And it was by a couple I really, really respected. And I was like, they probably have the perfect marriage. But the wife one day, she pulled me over and she was like, are you doing okay? Is everything okay? You look a little down. And, you know, my husband and I had been fighting and I was convinced. I'm like, you know, we're, we're going towards a divorce. I just know, you know, things are just not good. And she was like, oh, I just need to tell you about me and my husband. The first year we were married, she's like, I thought we were getting a divorce like every other day. And I was like, You guys are so perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she says their first year of marriage, they fought like cats and dogs. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so comforting for Mm -hmm. me to know that a couple that I look up to so much, like fought just like that. And I think people don't realize how much, because we keep it so private, which we should, but there is, there's a lot of like hard stuff in marriage. Yeah. But just because it's hard and just because it's like the worst thing you've ever been <laughs> through sometimes doesn't mean that there's a divorce coming. Because right. I think sometimes we think that, that it's a warning sign that there's a divorce on the horizon, but there's also mm-hmm. good times ahead too.
1: That um, I want to read this quote from President W. Kimball that Elder Oaks quotes President W. Kimball in here because what Lexi was just talking about, about marriage being hard, he is very blunt here about it. (laughs) He says, two individuals approaching the marriage altar must realize that to attain the happy marriage which they hope for, they must know that marriage means sacrifice, sharing, and even a reduction of some personal liberties. It means long, hard, economizing. It means children who bring them financial burdens, service burdens, care and worry burdens, And it also means the deepest and sweetest emotions of all. So I just love that quote because it's like, guys, marriage is hard. Like Mm -hmm. go into it, like expecting it to be so hard and it's going to be harder than that. Mm -hmm. But just like all hard things, it's super rewarding. Same for uh, being a parent, like ridiculously hard and the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that's what I love most about this last part of his talk is that he talks about prevention Which, uh, what's the quote about an ounce of prevention or... An ounce of prevention is worth like a pound of a cure or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, something like that. I am
1: all about that. Like, (laughs) let's prevent bad marriages. Let's just, you know, start there. And unfortunately, our culture of Mormons, it even happened to me. Like, my second marriage, I got married very fast. We just get married fast for lots of reasons. And that's not bad, but to prevent a divorce, you really need time, like time to get to know someone in lots of different circumstances, time to see how they react to different things, um, lots of dating, lots of courtship, and lots of questions. Like I cannot emphasize that enough. Like you should be discussing everything from finances to how many kids you wanna have. These are all things that you should be discussing before like a ring's ever on the finger. (laughs) Um, and he, he really addresses it here. Like you just have to talk a lot. It reminds me of a quote or I guess not a quote, but something one of my professors said in school, he said, you should go into marriage with both eyes wide open. And then once you're married, one eye closed. (laughs) yeah and it's true like you should just be like super like hyper like red flags I mean not to the point where you're scared you don't want to get to the point where you've um are nervous or scared to move but you just need to be hyper aware and then once you're in marriage you need to realize that no one's perfect so keep one eye shut to some of the things that happen (laughs)
0: let some stuff go right lots of stuff go lots of stuff go (laughs) You know, something else I think that's interesting about marriage, before I got married, I didn't realize that I needed to learn how to fight, which sounds funny, but it's like, you know, it took my husband a while, like that, probably that first year to realize Mm -hmm. like how to have a disagreement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took me lots of like storming out and like pouting and throwing temper tantrums for him, me to realize like, no, that just makes him build a wall. Mm -hmm. Like if I come to him and I'm really upset about something and we discuss it calmly and then, you know... If I leave him alone for a little while, eventually he'll come back and be like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, and I had to learn that. But it took like a good, long, uncomfortable minute before (laughs) I figured that out. (laughs) Yeah, fighting's not bad. Like
1: everyone kind of, or a lot of conflict avoiders, uh, people think it's because conflict is bad. But no, conflict is what keeps marriages together. It's when you have the right kind of conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that's learning other people's conflict style. Like there's some people who need like a calm down period. You know, there's some people like, if you give me a calm down period, I'm only going to get more mad. Like Mm -hmm. if you walk out, you know, that's only going to make me more angry. So it's part of it's learning your spouse's fighting style. (laughs) Part of it's unlearning maybe what you learned from your parents fighting style, um, or what's just natural, obviously, you know, like fighting the defense. A lot of it I think is, um, defense Like a lot of people just Mm -hmm. get super defensive. Um, That's quite common. And then a lot of it's selfishness. So a lot of it's just overcoming Mm -hmm. selfishness. But yeah, fighting is not a bad thing at all. In fact, I have a personality trait in a test that I took one time called harmony. And it's because I, I don't mind the conflict because I like to get to the harmony part. But I just like when you fight fair. Yeah. Fighting fair is important. So, oh yeah, the name calling, saying things like every time, you know, like those qualifiers. Mm-hmm. That's not true. It's not every time. Like don't, yeah. like cut those out. So, uh, it's important to try to fight fair. But and if that requires a calm down time, then that's okay mm-hmm. too. My one of my favorite marriage tactics when you have someone who wants conflict and someone who doesn't want conflict is um, scheduling a time. So you have one person who maybe needs a calm down time, but one person who needs to discuss it right then. Then you can just say, okay, can we get back to this in like two hours or tomorrow at five o'clock or, you know, like set a time. Like that's a really good marriage tip I have. So
0: So. (laughs) (laughs) I like that marriage tip. That's that's a good one. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. I also like the one about setting the rules about fighting fair, Yes, you know, and you can be really mad in that situation, but you don't need to do permanent damage. Right. You know, it's like, it's all about discussing the disagreement and moving on, not leaving permanent scars. Right. You you will have to set
1: rules. Like, I, I think a, quite a common one is not mentioning divorce. Speaking of divorce mm-hmm. is not saying, well, I want a divorce. Because you're going to get so mad that you're going to feel like you want a divorce. Mm-hmm. But just say it's not it's not an option. It's not Like a saying table. that's not an option. Because once you calm down, you're not going to really want that. Or once you work through it. But then that person's always hurt it. So that's like a – ground rules like that. Like, when I say this – um, we'll never name call, and then like if this happens, that means that we need to go have, have our calm down time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Like dips in marriage are very common, like highs and lows. And when I'm talking lows, I'm not talking about a day. I'm talking about like years, even. Oh, like yeah. it's super common to have ups and downs, and you shouldn't get depressed or think it's all's over just because you're having a slump. Like these slumps can last a long time, and that's normal and that's okay. But study after study has shown that if you will work through that time, you will be happier in the end than if you got a divorce. Studies after studies have shown that. So if you can work it out, you will be happier, which I think is super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Because a lot of times you think like, oh, gosh, if we just got divorced, like a lot of my problems will be solved, and i would be happier. But it's funny that that's not true. So um, and I think that's because a lot of times when you work through these problems, you're actually stronger. Mm -hmm. And um, a a lot of it requires Mm self-improvement. And when you just get a divorce, you really haven't improved yourself. And honestly, a lot of these problems will just continue, especially if you have children. You're just going to continue it now, mm-hmm. but now with an ex. And then if you get remarried and haven't really worked on those things that you need to work on, they'll pop up again, to be honest. So and they, they mentioned that in a couple of the talks. So uh, that's one of my favorite things I learned in school is that even though you're in a slump, just work through it because it will be better in the end.
0: Like I can tell you, year five of my marriage was yes. a slump. That's a common you know? one.
1: Five and seven are very common yeah. slump years. Yeah, very much so. Yep. The other big thing I want to talk about is because this is so because marriage is so important to the Lord. As we've talked about the reason why um, it's so important to the Lord, that means that it is one of Satan's favorite things to destroy, and um, it always helps me when I. I kind of think to myself, like Satan, like he's the one trying to do like, like I'm fighting a villain. I don't know. (laughs) But like, if you think about it, like he is trying everything in his power to destroy marriage. So we
0: need to try to fight back in whatever way possible. I agree. I mean, if the family is central to God's plan of salvation, then what better institution to attack than the family? Right. And always possible. Yep. Yep. And, you know, if he can get those parents to divorce, you know, there's going to be everlasting effects on both of them right. and also the kids. And there's going to be cracks where Satan can work his way in. Right. And yeah, so absolutely. I think that's exactly who you're fighting. You're not fighting your spouse. You're fighting Satan. I think so, too. A yep. lot of times. Instead of thinking of your spouse is the
1: one who's trying to ruin things, mm-hmm. think of Satan. And-
0: this is fun. I, I feel like it's going to be like everybody's coming and sitting with us and like, enjoying <laughs> that conversation. conversation? <laughs> Being part of our girls, not
1: they <laughs> There was chocolate here, so you all yeah. missed out. Everyone <laughs> missed out. <laughs> I feel, do you feel like I touched on the non-perfect circumstances enough? That just, was my biggest heart. Do you want to go over that one more time? Yeah, because I just okay. looked at
0: the thing and I'm like, how do we support those who are single, gay, divorced, and those who don't fit into the perfect LDS mold? How do we support them and make them feel loved and included? I think a
1: big part of supporting them is realizing all that they contribute. Um, like Christopherson said, um, that everyone can contribute to this plan. And so, and then, I mean, just fellowship, like I have a kind of terrible story of when I started in my, um, ward, I was single and, um, I was, I came all the time. I had callings. I was there quite frequently. (laughs) And then, um, I got married. I don't even know how many years it was into being in that ward, like two or three. I mean, it was a few years and I got married. And um, a sister came up to me and she said, well, now that you're officially part of our ward, I was like, whoa, yikes. Like this sister's really, I know she didn't mean it that way. Like she's very sweet person. She didn't mean it that way. Um, But I think avoiding that, you know, idea at all costs, mm-hmm. because everybody has something to contribute. Everyone has strengths that they can bring, uh, no matter what their situation. So, and they're needed not only do they have strengths, but they're needed. Like that's super important. You are needed no matter what your family situation looks like. You are needed. And I think if we can express that to people, um, that's the best way we can do to support them and let them know we love them. Like that's, I think a lot of people come to church thinking they're going to be judged, like we all do. Even those of us who aren't in those kind of situations. But I remember when I was coming in as a divorced, also known was divorced. Like I just assumed everybody was judging me. Most likely, everyone was sympathetic, probably towards me. But it feels like when you come in, like, oh, now I'm not divorced person, like. Now I'm coming to church, like, by myself. Like, all of a sudden, I had someone who's come to church with Now I'm not, and everyone's going to be judging me. And I think the best thing to do in those cases is just talk to people, you know, because when when people avoid you, you just assume, oh, they're avoiding me now because, you know, they're judging me or they no longer think that, you know, whatever. But
0: fellowship, kindness, love, that's <laughs> most important. <laughs> you know, one of the things, going back to an interview I did with um, Teresa a couple episodes back, you know, she talks about being widowed. And one of the ways that people have really reached out to her was, she's like, my friends who are still married still invite me to stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and it's not weird. Yeah. She's like, they make it not weird. It's just like as if, you know, Chris was still here and mm-hmm. I was hanging out with them. Yeah. And so I think that there's, you know, inviting people and having, you know, to callings and using them in callings and then talking to them at church. But also invite them to stuff outside of church. Yeah. And let them know that you're a friend, even, you know, even though maybe some circumstances are different. Right. I think... Like when we were talking
1: about like you and how you were feeling like you were not meant to ever be married Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, those who like have same sex attraction and, um, those who are born with like physical impairments and things. Like I, I really like this one sentence from Elder Christofferson because he says no one is predestined to receive less than all that the father has for his children. Um, in the end, he will compensate all deprivation and loss for those who turn to him. So exactly. it's huge, right? That's yeah. Big. No one is predestined
0: to receive
1: less. less than what the father has for his children. Like oh that's, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Like chill bumps. Right. <laughs> it's big. That's really big. <laughs> that's such a blessing from our heavenly father. It is such a blessing. So no matter what you feel like, and you know, the title of this lesson is what lack I yet. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what you feel like the lack in your life is, mm-hmm. you are not predestined for less. Right. Okay, so I know that was a really long episode. Thank you so much for sticking with it. Um, I also hope that you guys had fun hanging out with me in Kansas, kind of as like one of our girls' nights. Um, That's just kind of how we are. So um, thank you for hanging out with us. Also, I wanted to add, this is Sunday afternoon, so I've been through sacrament meeting, and I did ask the question, what lack I yet? And the answer that I got was to seek peace. So that is what I'm going to try and do this week is to seek peace, which is very surprising to me. I thought I was going to be like, stop being so impatient or something like that. But it was seek peace. So that's what I'm going to try and do. All right. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. I hope you have a peaceful week while you are seeking peace as well. And I will see you guys here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior said is not an official product or endorsed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions, and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.